Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10 once more as we come back to this uh, discourse by Christ with his disciples as he prepares to send them, them out. Last week we had an opportunity to dive into this and, and talk about Christ's message for his apostles here regarding fear. Fear is really what dominates this passage because fear is what he's trying to address that dominates their hearts as it dominates ours. Fear, of course, is that unpleasant emotion that arises within us whenever we contemplate uh, certain risks or certain threats to ourselves. Sometimes it's real, it's stimuli that's around us. Many times it is anticipated, it is just speculation, but it still grips us and takes hold of us and can dominate our hearts, sometimes to the point of inaction. People fear all kinds of things. A recent Gallup poll asked a thousand adults what they feared the most, and they noted a number of things in closed places, flying, heights, death, spiders, snakes, water, needle, failure, social, social rejection, and feeling alone, and all of those things. And I'm not sure if someone were to ask you what your greatest fear is, what you would list, but I doubt many Christians would list on there a fear of sharing their faith. And yet, it's a reality for a lot of Christians. A fear of sharing the gospel, a fear of speaking for Christ. It it literally invades your life on a weekly, maybe monthly basis at your places of work and your neighborhood and your friends and your family and can so dominate your heart and mind so as to close your lips and then to feel, uh, leave you with a sense of, of, uh, of guilt and failure over not speaking the way that you should speak. A fear of sharing the gospel. Well, this is something Jesus is trying to address with his 12 apostles in this passage. And uh, he's doing it as he's getting ready to send them out on their inaugural mission. And the overarching idea here is that they should not be afraid. They should not fear these kinds of of consequences. Before we get into it, I wanted to just sort of read it for us again and wrap our, our minds around it to get the context. But as I do, I want you to pay attention to all the times the Lord mentions fear. Do not fear. Do not be afraid throughout this entire passage. Verse 16, he says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given you in that hour. It's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, And father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated for all, or by all, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. 
A disciple's not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of, the house, of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in dark, say it in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body, uh, both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than the sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I'll also deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is a passage that addresses, among other things, fear. The potential reluctance of the apostles as the Lord is preparing to send them out on this first mission, the potential hesitancy that they would have to say the things they need to say in the places and to the people they need to say them to. There are elements here, as we mentioned last week, that uh, are applicable to this initial mission, but it's important as we read through this to know that what Jesus teaches them here have have a, a um, application beyond their initial mission, not just for them, but even for us. And we noted that last week, just taking note that although Jesus sends them, he says in verse 16, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm sorry, not there, but uh, back earlier in uh, verses 5 and 6. He's sending them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Although that's the limitation on their initial mission, we know this extends beyond that because he mentions how they're going to be brought before Gentiles, before governors and kings, which didn't exist in Israel. And we also take note that he talks about the Spirit who would fill them and, and, and speak through them. And we know at this point the Spirit has not even been given. So these are instructions, these are principles that Jesus is giving them to grapple with the natural fear that they would have in sharing the gospel. But the principles extend beyond this limited campaign to begin with and really extend beyond just these 12 apostles into even our life. There are things here that are applicable, that are instructive, that are helpful for you and I as we think about the challenges of opening our lips, of speaking the gospel wherever we go. And so this morning, uh, we're going to come back. We started last week looking at these principles that Jesus gives, seven of them in total, as he sends them out that are designed to prepare them for the difficulties and the opposition they're going to face. Seven principles that keep them both willing and ready to share the gospel wherever they go. The first one we saw last week is simply be cautious in your testimony. Be cautious in your testimony. The Lord says that he's sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves, trying to communicate to them the dangers that surround them because we have a tendency to be naive. 
We have a tendency to not understand the situation that we're in, the people that we'll face, the kind of opposition that we'll face. We need to be aware that this is not a welcoming world for those of us who stand with Christ. And so because of these dangers, Jesus, from the very get-go, tells you, you need to be cautious. Or the way he says it, you need to be wise. You need to be wise as serpents, which really just speaks about not making yourself an easy target. Serpents were stealthy. Serpents were generally uh, creatures that kept themselves blended in and hidden to some extent. They didn't make themselves, we might say, easy targets. And you need to be innocent as doves. That is to say that you have a purity in your own heart, a purity in your own motive. And what he's basically telling us is that we need to find ways to present ourselves to the world that do not unnecessarily cause offense, unnecessarily build barriers, unnecessarily ostracize people. If we're going to be moving out into a world that is already prone to hostility toward us because of our affiliation with Christ, then you want to be careful not to do anything over and above that to be provocative. And that that means you're wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Secondly, he reminds us to be courageous in verse 17 and 18. You might be wise and you might be cautious and you might be as harmless as you can be, but there's still going to be hostility and you're still going to have to realize that. You're still going to have to face that. Jesus says, beware of men. They'll deliver you over to courts and flog you and they'll drag you before governors and kings to bear witness for me before the Gentiles. It's going to happen. Prepare for it. Be aware of it. Don't be surprised by it. You're going to have to muster the courage with that realization, you're going to have to muster the courage to step forward into the conflict, into the opposition. There's no way around it. And when you do face that resistance, Jesus says in verse 19, he gives a third principle, be confident in the words of the Spirit. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious about what you're going to say or what you're going to speak, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour. He's a He's speaking here about a dependence on the Spirit, which he elaborates in verse 20. It's not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father speaking through you. So there's no need to be anxious. The Spirit will fill your heart and mind with His words, and those words will be sufficient at that moment to make whatever defense is necessary for God's truth. Another way to say that is the Spirit's words are sufficient to defend the Spirit's message. The Spirit's words are sufficient to defend the Spirit's message. He's promising that God is going to fill you with His Spirit to give you the words to speak appropriately. This isn't, by the way, a promise of inspiration like Jesus later gives to the apostles in the upper room. He's not saying that you're going to suddenly, you know, um, be endowed with the ability to write the, you know, 28th book of the New Testament. Nor is he even saying that you're going to have the silver tongue or perfect eloquence that you would desire to have. That, none of that is the point. The point is that if you rely on the Spirit, that the Spirit will give you the necessary words at that moment. The necessary words at that moment. Now, don't misunderstand this 
to mean that you don't have to make any preparation. Some people read this and they think, well, well, that's great. I mean, I don't have to worry about anything. I just kind of just, you know, just kind of bop through life. And then if anything bad happens, uh, you know, God's going to become my ventriloquist. But that's not what he's saying. He's not suggesting that this is um, a call for laziness and preparation. Peter himself tells us that you and I need to be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason of the hope that's within us. We need to make preparation. We need to do study. We need to fill our heart and mind with the scripture. As a matter of fact, that's where many times the source of these spiritual words comes from. It is the word that we've hidden in our hearts. And if you have any doubt about that, you can just compare Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, which tells us, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you'll speak to one another in Psalms and spiritual songs. So filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll speak that way. And then you come to Colossians 3, and it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, and you'll speak to one another in Psalms and spiritual songs. So you let the word of Christ dwell within you, and you speak to one another in that way. In other words, to be filled with the Spirit is to have the word of Christ richly dwelling within you. So where do these words come from? When you're standing before opposition, when you're standing in front of other people, where does the Spirit find the words to speak? He finds them in the words that you've hidden in your heart. This is not a call to laziness or lack of preparation any more than back in verse 9 when Jesus told the disciples, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey. He's not suggesting that you should never save money for the future or don't carry a you know, piece of luggage on your flight. This is not a prohibition against those kinds of preparations. But this is instruction for you not to find your security either in your material possessions or in your eloquence or your capacity to say the right thing at the right moment. If you are, then you're likely to shrink back from placing yourself into the the, the moment of tension because you don't know what you'll say. But he's giving you the promise that God's spirit will give you God's words. The spirit will speak through you his spiritual words and you can be confident in that. Well, those are the principles we covered last week. This, today we wanna add four more to that. The fourth one, It helps keep us willing and ready to share the gospel comes in verse 21 through 23, and that is be committed to the end. Be committed to the end. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you'll be hated by all for my namesake. So basically, everyone's going to hate you. That's what he's saying. Everyone's going to hate you. It's not a very encouraging message. You're not only going to be hated by the synagogue leaders and the Gentile kings and governors. I mean, it's bad enough that the institutional authorities are going to stand against you and oppose you in your faith, but your friends are going to hate you and your family is going to hate you. Parents are going to be mad at you. Children are going to be upset with you. You'll be hated by all. 
Not every single individual. He's not saying that. Otherwise, there'd be no point to even try to share the, share the gospel. But all classes of people, all kinds of people. People that you would expect to be hated by and people you wouldn't expect to be hated by. From people in power and common people, from those you know well and those you don't know at all, from the rich, from the poor, from the educated, from the uneducated, from all kinds of people. You're going to be resisted. You're going to be hated. And it's going to come from the most unexpected of places. It's going to come sometimes from the most trusted people, from the most loved people. They're going to resist you. They're going to stand against you. They're going to hate you. And in some cases, they're even going to deliver you up to death. Why would they do that? Why why would parents deliver their own children over to death? Why would children be so upset with their parents that they would deliver their parents over to death? Why would a brother turn against a brother? Well, Jesus says, it's because of me. They'll do it, he says, all for my name's sake. It's a constant refrain that runs throughout that passage. Remember back in verse 18, this is why they drag you before synagogues and governors. It's all for my name's sake. In other words, this animosity, this hatred, this resistance is going to be generated by your loyalty to Christ and to his message. I mentioned this last week. It's going to be labeled maybe in all kinds of other ways. People will try to label it sociologically or politically or culturally or whatever, but it is spiritual. They, might, they, they may try to say that they just don't like your particular worldview. They don't like your particular preferences. They might not like this or that. But Jesus says, no, what they don't like is they don't like Christ. They don't like Christ and they don't like his message and you're the one delivering it so they don't like you. The world hates Christians because the world hates Christ. And so if you speak the message of Christ, if you call people to Christ, they will begin to hate you. Now, obviously, there are ways to avoid this. I mean, you can salvage these relationships. You can bring them back from the brink if you're just willing to cover up Christ and don't speak about him. Don't talk about his word. Don't mention the fact that he's our judge. Don't bring up his righteousness. Don't talk about consequences of sin. Don't speak about his authority. Yeah, I mean, you can salvage your relationships if you do all that. If you're willing to compromise those standards and appease the sinful pursuits of friends and family, they'll tolerate you. But if you hold true to your confession, if you're willing to walk in submission to your Lord, be prepared to be hated by every corner. This is why Jesus tells you here, it's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. It wears you down. It, it, it can wear you out. When the most beloved people in your life, 
The ones that you thought were trusted, they begin to turn against you. The pain and the agony that you feel from the tension, that in itself can cause you to pull away, to fall back, to walk away. And then you have all the the heat and all of the animosity coming from your peers at school and at work and around society or whatever it might be. You have all that stuff coming against you. Sure, I mean, it's, it's too much for some people. They can't make it. But true faith, Jesus says, true faith faces all of that pain and all of that heartache and it simply endures. Genuine faith endures. And when it endures, it reaches its final destination, which is salvation. That is, the, that is not just the forgiveness of your sins, but even the, even the um, release from this corrupted and fallen body into the glory of, of God's kingdom. Your faith, your faith is an enduring faith if you are truly a child of God. Whatever the rejection, whatever the heartache, whatever the hatred, whatever the betrayal, whatever the pain, whatever the distress, you endure and by your endurance you, you manifest the genuineness of your faith. Or another way to say that is you manifest that it is saving faith. It isn't temporary faith. It is saving faith. There is a faith that doesn't save. There is a person that says, I believe in God, but they're not willing to endure this kind of betrayal. They're not willing to endure this kind of rejection. So they do not have saving faith. They have superficial, temporal, shallow faith. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or another way to say this is that the faith that God gives is a faith that saves, and a faith that saves is by nature a faith that cannot fail. The faith that God gives is a saving faith, but the the saving faith that God gives cannot fail. It cannot be destroyed. There are going to be seasons of testing, there will be seasons of ridicule, seasons of rejection, seasons of pain. And there are always going to be those who make initial professions of faith, but they eventually fall away. The church has always had to endure this. The church has always recognized this, that with every harvest, there's always some chaff that has to be or will be burned away by the heat of persecution. And so you need to be aware of it. You need to realize that the faith that you claim is not going to be easily held on to. It's going to require testing and it's going to require endurance. And so you have to be prepared to go through the rejection, through the pain, and to come out the other side, even by those who are closest to you. And part of that endurance, Jesus says, is that you keep on preaching. You're not silenced. He says in verse 23, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you'll not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So you can't be deterred by the lack of receptivity. You can't withdraw from the battle after one bloody skirmish. It doesn't matter if you're in it for 10 days, for 10 months, for 10 years, or for a lifetime. You can't withdraw. You have to recognize that there's always some other place, there's always some other person who still needs to hear, who still needs to respond to the gospel, and so you cannot be deterred. 
by the rejection. You have to keep on speaking. Keep on speaking. And we do this, Jesus says, until the Son of Man comes there at the end of verse 23. Seems like an odd statement. In fact, the first half of the statement, Jesus says, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel. He seems to be referring to their initial mission when they're going just to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But in the second half, he kind of picks up this prophetic language from the prophet Daniel speaking about the Son of Man coming like like Daniel 7, the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And, and so it's confused a lot of people what Jesus is talking about here. We don't have time to trace through all the various suggestions that have been made. But most likely, Jesus is referring to an outreach for Israel that will, that will continue through their ongoing rejection, ongoing persecution. It will continue. You'll continue to have to move from one opportunity to the next, preaching the gospel. And that outreach will go on and on and on until the return of Christ. So Jesus seems to be looking beyond that initial mission to a worldwide outreach here, particularly of the Jews, speaking of Israel, not so much as a territory, but as a group of people. And he's saying, you'll not have fully preached in all the places where the lost sheep of the house of Israel are, all the synagogues, all the cities, all the towns, wherever they are, you'll not have preached to all of them before, the, before Christ returns. And so don't stop. That's the point. Don't be deterred. Don't pause. You can't let rejection in one place or with one person paralyze you. You can't let betrayal and hatred in one town or for one group cause you to stop sharing the gospel. As true as it was for the apostles, it's true for you and me. That would be Satan's strategy to silence you, to make you believe that when one person rejects you, everyone's going to reject you. To make you believe that though you're ill-treated by, as you're ill-treated by one person, every person's going to treat you the same way. And so you give up sharing. And when you do that, you miss out on the overwhelming joy of being used as the instrument of God to introduce someone to the eternal saving truth of the gospel. Don't let it happen, Jesus says. You have to endure. You have to be committed to the end when he returns. Jesus adds a fifth principle to help us to be willing and ready. In verse 24 and 25, be conscious of Christ's sufferings. Disciples not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher or servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? This, this is axiomatic. I mean, it's, it makes perfect sense. It's a simple principle. The pupil can't rise above his teacher. If you do, you become the teacher. It's basic. You, you are either learning from someone or you surpass them and you become the teacher. You either don't know everything you need to know and so you're dependent on someone to teach you or you become the teacher and you are dispensing the wisdom and knowledge to others. So it's just basic. And so Jesus is simply challenging you. Consider your role in this relationship. Are you the teacher or are you the pupil? 
Are you the teacher or are you the disciple? Are you going to teach Jesus how to better handle the oppositions and the hatred of the world? Are you going to teach Jesus how to better navigate those who would oppose his gospel? Are you going to teach him how to face hostility and keep everyone happy? Are you going to teach him or are you going to learn from him? Plain and simple. Are you the teacher or are you the disciple? It's the same with the second analogy that he gives here. Are you the master or are you the slave? Are you giving the commands or are you receiving them to obey? You need to make the choice. Which one are you, master or slave? And it doesn't really matter what your view of slavery is. In the New Testament, the Scripture speaks about a believer as a willing slave, an eager slave of Christ. He knows that there will never be a more benevolent, more loving, more kind, more worthy master. And so every true believer eagerly and gladly declares himself to be a slave of Christ. So if we are slaves, it should be clear that we're not the ones making the demands. We don't mandate comforts. We don't mandate luxuries. We don't mandate personal goals. We don't mandate whatever. We follow mandates. His mandate is clear that we are willing to confront whatever suffering we have to in order to speak. And so you have to decide, are you the one making the mandates or are you the one receiving them? And because we're his slaves, we don't assume that we deserve to receive better than he received. We may be tempted sometimes to think that we deserve better, but when we reflect on the nature of our relationship, we can correct our own hearts. Jesus is reminding us. This is the way they treated him. They called him Beelzebul, which was a derogatory term. It literally means the Lord of the flies. It was a pagan uh, deity, uh, probably that name was associated with a God that they thought could, could control the f- swarming flies that may have uh, um, afflicted their territories from time to time. They had gods of the sun and gods of the you know, trees and gods of everything. But the Jews picked up this name and mockingly used it to speak about all the flies that buzzed around the raw meat sitting on the altar of their pagan temples. Every time you went in a pagan temple, it was just fly infested. And so they, the Jews began to use this term mockingly of pagan deities who they believed to be just, just front, uh, uh, fronts for, or, or just mask for true Satan worship. But in reality, these weren't gods at all. And it was demonstrated by the fact that they, all they could do was attract flies. And so they would use this term in a mocking way, almost as an accusation, not just of of satanic deception, but even of trickery. That you're promising something that you have no power to deliver on. All you can do is attract flies. And this is the way they spoke about Christ. They use this kind of derogatory language about Christ over in chapter 12, verse 24, when he's casting out demons. They say he does it by Beelzebul. And so he's telling them, if they spoke about me, 
in this way, if they use derogatory words about me, if they speak about me as being, as being duplicitous and deceptive, if they mock me as being useless, do you think you're going to do any better? Do you think you're going to find a better way to navigate around their rejection? Are you the teacher? Are you now the master? So consider him and take it as a sign that you're a true slave of Christ and a true disciple of Christ when, because of his name, they begin to treat you the same way that they treated him. Sixth, Jesus says, you'll be ready and willing to share the gospel by being clear in your profession of faith. Being clear in your profession of faith. And this really has everything to do with uncovering and bringing things to the light. He says, have no fear of them in verse 26. Fear of who? Well, fear of those who are persecuting you, fear of those who are resisting you, fear of those who are rejecting you. And why should you have no fear of them? Well, because God is going to uncover the things that are covered. That's what he says. Nothing uh, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Those things that are hidden, everything from their motives and secret sins, those people that you're trying to talk to and you're trying to get them to acknowledge their need for God and confess their sins, all that stuff that would expose and embarrass and discredit your opponents, all that stuff that they have, uh, they have tried to suppress, not to mention all of the truth that they have tried to ridicule and mock and cast aside all of that stuff is going to be brought to the surface and it's all going to be demonstrated as true you might be tempted to fear them because they mock your faith and call you naive and they assault your arguments and question your intellect and they assume your faith comes from the fact that you're just socially conditioned to think the way that you're you, you think or you've been brought up to believe a certain way or you have a simplistic worldview or you're unsophisticated. You haven't experienced the real hardships of suffering and so you, you have this shallow view of, of right and wrong or maybe you just need some sort of fairy tale to soothe and comfort your mind. Whatever the reason they, they view your faith as naive and simple-minded and unscientific and judgmental or maybe even prideful, thinking that you've got the truth. The world will say there's no ultimate judgment, there's no negative consequences for sin, there's no dangers in rejecting God. All of that stuff is thrown out there as if it's reality, as if that is the truth. They paint the world around them in that illusion. And what Jesus is saying is that's like a, their attempt to throw a blanket to cover up the hard truths they don't want to deal with, but he's saying all of it's going to come out. It is going to be revealed. All the answers, all the fulfillment, all the truth, all of the mysteries is all going to come out. The world can try to hide 
its consequences of sin. It can try to cast an illusion that the pathway that it's pursuing is a pathway of fun and excitement. It can try to deny that it leaves them empty when they lay their heads on their pillow at night or that they're They're full of shame and guilt in their heart. It can try to put on a front of happiness, but Jesus says all of the illusions will be wiped away and the truth will be known. They can hide and they can lie to you, but they can't lie to him. The illusions will be wiped away. You, however, you already know the truth. The stuff that isn't readily available because it's always suppressed, the stuff that's kind of whispered in the dark and whispered in your ear, you already know the truth. The things that are still hidden to the world, the things that their eyes are blinded to, you've heard it. You've received it. And so Jesus says, proclaim it from the housetops. Don't wait. Don't wait for that truth to be manifested on the the day of judgment. You go ahead and and you climb up on, on top of the roof and you proclaim it as loud as you can. Even though, even though people want to deny it right now, you proclaim it because it is the reality. It's a reality they don't want to face, but it is the truth. And those truths will be revealed in the end. And then finally, we can be ready and willing to share our faith, he says in verse 28 through 31, by being comforted by God's care. Comforted by his care. This is the reality, he says, that God deeply cares for you. So in verse 28, don't fear him. Don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who destroys both soul and body in hell. I mean, don't fear him. The worst they can do to you is not nearly as bad as the worst that God can do to you. And he's the one who can kill both body and soul, can destroy both body and soul. By the way, don't imagine he's talking here about an all-at-once destruction. Some people think that, 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 that the afterlife is just sort of this moment of annihilation, just poof, and you're just wiped off the scene, all consciousness, all life is gone. When the Bible speaks about destruction, it isn't instantaneous destruction. It is eternal destruction. It is ongoing, never-ending destruction. Ongoing, never-ending torment. This is what 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says. Using the same word that's used here, the word for destruction, it says it is eternal destruction. Ongoing. Just like our own life, whenever we experience eternal life, is ongoing life. So those who find themselves under the judgment of God will have a destruction, will have a judgment, will have a death that never ends. And so Jesus says, that's what you need to be worried about. Don't worry about whatever they might take from you now. Don't worry about whatever they might afflict you with now. Don't worry about what they're gonna say about you now. Don't fear them. You fear the one who can do all that. You fear the Lord. You know, the scripture says in Proverbs 29, 25, that the fear of man is a snare. It is a snare. Meaning that it's one of those traps with some sort of enticing 
dainty little thing in the middle that gives the appearance of satisfying, gives the appearance of, uh, of maybe attraction, but it will, in the end, destroy you. And so this is, a, this is a temptation with the fear of man. You might assume that by latching on to some sort of temporal compromise, some sort of temporal appeasement, that this is maybe going to get you through your troubles and you're going to be able to find some, some peace. If you just sort of back away from your demands that somehow this is going to lead to the road of, of, uh, of blessing, but Jesus is saying, don't fear them. Don't fear them, fear the Lord. That is the beginning of knowledge. And that's the beginning of wisdom. There's nothing that they can do for you. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 29, God cares for you. Like two sparrows sold for a penny, which is basically like one sixteenth of of a day's wages. I guess in our world, that would be like half an hour of work. Two sparrows can be purchased for that, he says. These are cheap. These are the cheapest type of animal that you could buy in the market. The cheapest thing that you could purchase. Those cheap, inexpensive things. He says, even those things, not one of them, not one of them anywhere around the world falls to the ground where God isn't uh, uh, acutely aware of it. And the hairs of your head, not one of them falls. Some of them fell this morning. You don't even know it. They'll fall tomorrow. You're not even aware of. You have about 140,000. You know, you, you know you're losing a few every year. But beyond that, you don't know what's going on day to day, but he does. That's how, that's how in tuned he is with every, with every cell in your body. You've been made in the image of God. He sent his son to die on your behalf. And so you cannot imagine that the most hurtful word that said to you, the most, the, most, um, uh, the most vile threat that's made to you, the most dangerous attack that comes against you, you can't imagine that that's escaping God's notice. You have to know that all of these things are there. So he says in verse 31, fear not, therefore, you're of more value than the sparrows. You've got to trust in God's care. You've got to be rested in God's care. If you're, let me say it this way, if you're dependent on whoever it is you're talking to to be the ultimate source of your security and satisfaction, you'll never, ever share your faith. But if you're going out there knowing that they contribute nothing to your satisfaction or to your security that God himself has not already ordained. If you're resting in the care of God like that, then you're ready and you'll be willing to share your faith. Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I'll acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven, but whoever denies me, I'll deny before my Father in heaven. Such a sad, sad thing to contemplate that for some very temporary very passing appeasement and popularity you would deny Christ before others 
And you'll be shocked standing before him. You'll be grieved. You'll be broken to realize that he denies you. You have to be ready. You have to be willing. You have to endure. You have to recognize the sufficiency of the Spirit speaking through you. Step into the opposition and resistance and make the gospel known. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful again this hour, so thankful for these words. We need to hear it. We readily confess that we are too hesitant, too fearful, too overcome by anxieties. And therefore, and therefore, unworthy as your servants and your disciples. Lord, you've taught us. You set such a perfect example for us to follow in. We want to do that. We want to be faithful in sharing our faith. I pray that you would help us this week to look for the opportunities to find the courage and the commitment and the confidence in you to be clear as we proclaim the truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.